0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba
2: life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by the one and only THR's chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan?
0: Oh, very little. You got a new haircut,
2: Leslie. I did get a new haircut. It's, you know time for the holidays. Got to clean it up. I
0: understand. Got to put your best face forward. Speaking of best face forward, we have to thank the LA Press Club for something.
2: Yes, we were nominated for an LA Press Club Award. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to the Press Club and thank you to our loyal listeners. Dan, I'm having a blast doing this.
0: I thought you were about to uh, transition to my telling people to subscribe on their platforms of choice, and then we could just be done with the podcast right here, right now, easy peasy.
2: But then we record would, time. But then no one would hear this great interview that we've got in this week's showrunner spotlight.
0: We do, and also, of course, people would not learn what's in this week's headlines.
2: Well, on the pickup front, FX has renewed Sons of Anarchy spinoff Mayans for a third season. Netflix has added a drama called From Scratch, starring Zoe Saldana and produced by Reese Witherspoon, who is nearing the streaming bingo card with scripted shows at Netflix now and Amazon and Hulu and three of them over at Apple. Your next crackle. Meanwhile, NBC's Superstore, ABC's Bless This Mess and American Housewife have all scored additional episode orders. Over at BET Plus, the streaming service has picked up two scripted shows from Tyler Perry. And then over at Apple, meanwhile, they have officially confirmed news that we knew to be true months and months and months <laughs> ago that C and Dickinson and For All Mankind have all been renewed.
0: This uh, must be a tremendous relief for everyone who has been in the writer's room for all of those shows for months, writing and the second season. for
2: all of those people who are already in production <laughs> on some of those shows. The Morning Show, of course, was already renewed that was picked up with a two-season 20 episode order after a massive massive bidding war sources close to apple say millions and i put that in quotes now millions of people watched all four shows throughout its debut weekend after it launched apple tv plus look we've said this every single week it feels like streaming services don't release viewers we don't know it's time These companies know how many people are watching their programming. If they know how many people in the world are subscribing to their service, they sure as shit know that hundreds of millions of people are watching throughout the world and where and how many and how long and all this other stuff. But come on, give us the numbers. Release the viewers!
0: (laughs) What I will say in this case, and I, I am always most strongly in favor of getting as much data as possible, I understand why Apple would fudge the details and be all fuzzy and meaningless now. I mean, they are dealing with a massive rollout of a product that has been many years in coming, and there's no reason for them to give us anything other than the most nebulous of facts. For the first three days. Similarly, I do not expect that Disney is going to rush out to tell us what the numbers are next week for Disney+.
2: But you know what? How much would it change the game if Disney said, hey, we had 10 million Star Wars nerds watch The Mandalorian within its first weekend of release? Oh,
0: it would be it would be a mic drop. The question is going
2: to be the first one to do that.
0: That is a good question. I think probably the answer is the first one who has something that's significant and numerically significant enough that they can do it. I mean, if if. The Mandalorian, the first episode, is watched by 20 million people next Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Yes, I would bet that, honestly, Disney will tell us that. I I, Seriously, because I don't think they're going to tell us how many people watch any of their other shows. But it's something where it's such a built-in audience and where the built-in audience is part of the kind of audience that, you know, turns out in $200 million numbers in the first week at the box office. So it's an audience that's trained to watch things immediately. It does not surprise me that Apple would not tell us how many people watched C. Uh, but And it will not surprise me when Disney doesn't tell us how many people watch The Mandalorian. This is not something that's going to happen. I can just imagine it being a show with enough immediate attention that people would talk about it. But we're going to talk more about Disney Plus later in this podcast. In development news, because we're sticking with headlines, uh, Ava DuVernay, who is extremely busy is producing a labor union drama for tnt while tnt's parent warner media is teaming with david wayne to uh, develop a daily scripted comedy yes you heard that correctly daily scripted comedy uh, and has given a four episode pilot order to today's special which is not based i don't think on the really really creepy canadian nickelodeon children's show from the early 80s. I'm correct about that, I trust? You are correct, sir. With the mannequin who comes to life and the guy with the strange blonde afro. Um, Yeah, man, seriously, bring back today's special.
2: In this week's Greg Verlandi news, the prolific producer is re-teaming with Blindspot's Martin Giro for a female take on Kung Fu, which is in development over at the CW. In other reboot news, Queen Latifah will star in a new take on The Equalizer for CBS, and ABC is developing a sequel to Emily Van Camp thriller Revenge, with Mike Kelly, the original creator, also attached.
0: I need to stop and pause and think of how many of those things I actually need. Uh, uh yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> I have no answer. In showrunners' changes, HBO Max has made its first change, because all the cool streaming kids are doing it. Uh, John Spates is stepping down from Dune, the sisterhood of the traveling pants. Wait, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Just Dune, the sisterhood. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I would watch first. that. Everyone, it's so hard. Everyone <laughs> would watch that. It's uh, you know, yeah. Except it doesn't exist. Uh, to focus on the announced feature film Dune's sequel. Which or Legendary Pictures.
2: Technically, the sequel hasn't officially been announced, but yeah, he's writing the sequel there's a, instead there's of the a, show.
0: There's a strange cockiness to all of the Dune-based products that everyone are putting on here, as if this is the blockbuster that the world is looking for and as if the David Lynch movie wasn't an epic failure of Legendary proportion, not to be confused with Legendary, the production company making these things.
2: Oh, Jesus. Sorry. Well, in other TV reunion news, Kristen Bell is returning as the narrator of HBO Max's upcoming Gossip Girl update. And in news that gives me great pleasure, the cast of NBC's Jason Katims drama Parenthood, one of my all-time favorite shows, is reuniting for the 2020 ATX TV Festival over in Austin. Be sure to go back and check out our June 7th episode featuring the festival creators talking all about how they book these big reunions and how they program the annual event. It was a great, that was a fun one.
0: It was a great episode and I am already looking forward to maybe potentially doing it again next year.
2: Yes, and I'm looking forward to Dune, the sisterhood of the (laughs) traveling Pants.
0: We're all there for it. But all of those stories, as big as they were, were not big enough to make this week's TV's top five.
2: No, let's get into our first topic. Leading off this week, it's been a busy one for ABC's live events department. Number one. On Tuesday, ABC broadcast its sort of live take on The Little Mermaid. Unlike other networks, live musicals, this one was more of a hybrid part animated favorites, part live staging. The reviews, uh, you know, I- I'm going to say mixed uh, and be nice here.
0: Would you uh, describe them as mixed-ish five times fast?
2: Oh, my God. There's so many jokes here, Dan. Continue. Um, I'm not even going to try in that one. But anyway, the special delivered big, regardless of how good it was, and we'll get into that shortly for you, Dan. 2.6 in the key adults demo and 9 million total viewers easily winning the night, beating new episodes of This Is Us, etc. It was also bigger than Fox's Rent Live, which flopped in January with 3.4 million viewers and a 1.4 in the demo by comparison. Dan, we were texting throughout this, and it was, for me, it was a little bit more entertaining than, than it was to actually watch the show.
0: Well, if you hadn't been texting me, I would have stopped watching it, but you kept making it clear that I needed to keep watching it so that we could talk about it on the podcast. So here I am talking about it on the podcast. Yeah, it, it was... I understand what they thought they wanted to do. What they wanted to do, though, turned out not really to be all that entertaining. Uh, So you had, as you say, this hybrid thing where for like 10 or 15 minutes stretches at a time, I was just watching The Little Mermaid on the TV while people in an audience watched The Little Mermaid. There was no purpose to it. then... Ali'i Cravalho came out and she was wonderful. And it's like, yay, you're really talented. But then she vanished again and it was just back to watching the movie on TV. And then Queen Latifah came out and Queen Latifah is incredibly talented. I I think that we have sort of in our live musicals, because she was also in The Wiz, have sort of put up this idea that she's a better pure vocalist than I think she is. And I think she is extremely talented in many different ways. I don't think she's the best singer in the world, and I think she would probably tell you that. Probably, maybe. I I
2: think she was the most charismatic part of the whole production. Oh, she's got... Charisma. And I love Olly Icaro. E.
0: And she was having so much fun. There's no question Queen Latifah was having fun, but I don't think I would describe her performance as wonderfully sung. I, I, you know, she was fine. And then you had uh, Graham Phillips, who was, you know, sort of boring, but he sang Prince Eric's stuff, I would say, very well. I think he was utterly pleasant. Shaggy was horrible. I, like, just just dreadfully bad. He did not really seem to know what he was doing. He made such a mess of under-the-sea... It was, I said this on Twitter, there was nothing as bad as that under the sea in NBC's version of Peter Pan that everyone made fun of for years.
2: And we should note, THR's fantastic correspondent, Gene Bentley, who was on scene for the dress rehearsal, said that Shaggy forgot the words to Under the Sea during rehearsal.
0: <sighs> yeah, he was, he was. How do you
2: forget the words to Under the Sea? It's literally just repeating Under the Sea like a hundred times.
0: Oh, no, no. This, this is for the you had one job Twitter feed. It, yeah. This is this is not a thing that should be complicated. And then there was the sort of. All of the background characters that were basically second-tier Muppets. uh, That were
2: in my nightmares for the rest of the week. They were
0: not so great. And this is a company that, of course, owns the first-tier Muppets. So at that point, you know... well, he's
2: part of one of the first-tier Muppets.
0: Why not bring some Muppets out to play?
2: Here's here's my question, Dan. (laughs) And then we'll move on to, you know, the rest of ABC's big live uh, announcements this week. But... I've been to those Hollywood Bowl live sing-along things that they've done where they have people come out on stage and perform, you know, a lot of these numbers as they're showing the movie. Why not just do that and tape it and play it live on ABC? Because those are a ton of fun.
0: But I think that we've sort of given the impression that liveness is a brand of its own and that the liveness brand is a popular brand, even though, as you already said in this very segment, it didn't work for Rent Live, which, as we... Have discussed extensively and adequately was not really live and was just a big old mess. And
2: there was nothing that they could really do with that. I mean, the guy yes, broke they his could leg. Have,
0: they could have had an understudy.
2: Oh, well, they didn't. Well, <laughs> anyway, I mean.
0: Like every live production in the world, they could have had an understudy because I don't remember the name of the guy who broke his foot. Do you? Could you have found an equally Bra- big Brandon name? Brandon Hunt.
2: <laughs> was it Brandon Hunt? I don't know. I'm I'm actively Googling. Go Brandon. for
0: it. Google away. He wasn't bad or anything. He just wasn't such a big name that you couldn't have had someone with some Broadway training as, a, as an understudy for that. Anyway, why, why are we ranting about Brandon Hunt? It was again?
2: Brennan Hunt. Brennan I was close.
0: Hunt. You were very close. Yeah. So Little Mermaid, it was not awful. And again, Ali Cravallo is a wonderful singer and a wonderful presence. And by all means, give her things to
2: do. She sang... Wonderfully, uh, but and go watch Rise Season 1 somewhere, streaming on NBC sites, which or I actually really
0: loved. Uh, it got decent about the halfway point. But and very,
2: finished very strong.
0: <sighs> and, anyway. Yes, it was it was not wonderful. Um, yeah, it was hokey.
2: The whole thing was hokey.
0: But what else is on ABC's Live on tap?
2: Yes, ABC was actually really smart about the way they announced this. So just mere, I think it was hours maybe before Little Mermaid Live aired, ABC confirmed that, yes, they are doing a second one of the live in front of a studio audience. It will air just... December 18th, and this time feature holiday-themed episodes of All in the Family and Norman Lear's Good Times. Casting hasn't been announced. It's unclear if Woody Harrelson or Marissa Tomei are going to reprise their roles for the All in the Family portion of this. And beyond that, I'm kind of curious why they're doing a second one of All in the Family.
0: I think they're kind of underlining how sort of important that is to the Norman Lear brand, and they're keeping it within the Norman Lear family as opposed to, you know, we were, when everyone was, sort of spitballing other shows that they could do no one was necessarily keeping it within that brand and I think they think that's important Uh, with Woody Harrelson and Marissa Tomei I thought Marissa Tomei was wonderful I thought Woody Harrelson was not particularly good I would kind of like to see them recast the parts just because i think that's a fun thing to think about you know let's yeah, see how it's also, someone There's else would some do
2: brand confusion there too so the bigger question is if they have deals for woody and marissa tomei and and the rest of the people who, who were in that last year but uh that'll all be announced in the coming weeks look they have until december 18th to figure all that out so
0: and it did well and it won Emmys and all of that so i understand why they're doing it and i'm
2: you know it was it was entertaining enough and and they're doing a third one in the spring which hasn't been revealed yet
0: by all means and maybe don't do a third all in the family episode just you know mix it up
2: well that takes us to our second topic this week up next
0: we have a little breaking news number 2 fx has the movies the movies the movies fx has the movies But now Hulu has the FX. Break things down for us, Leslie.
2: Yeah, this is a mess already. As announced Thursday during Disney's earnings call, Hulu, the Disney-owned streaming platform, will be the streaming home to FX original series. So what does that mean? If you read the press release that they sent out, it means that 40 shows produced by FX, classics like American Horror Story... One of my favorites, You're the Worst, those will all now stream on Hulu. Season one of Taboo. But what it also means, too, is that there will be a special FX on Hulu. I don't know if channel is the right word, but let's call it that for now. And that four shows that FX has spent the past year plus developing Mrs. America starring Kate Blanchett. A Teacher, the limited series starring Kate Mara and Nick Robinson at Jeff Bridges drama The Old Man and Alex Garland's highly anticipated devs will not, I repeat, they will not air on FX. Instead, they will air on Hulu, but not really on Hulu, on a tab or whatever it's going to be, a channel called FX on Hulu. These will be distributed by Hulu but continued to be overseen by FX, meaning they will handle the marketing and publicity for those shows. John Landgraf, FX CEO, will continue to have creative oversight, so if he wants to hypothetically renew devs, that's an FX decision, not a Hulu decision. So yeah, this is basically kind of what we were anticipating where we've been saying for months, that FX fair will eventually wind up on Hulu. What we didn't expect was it to be a larger kind of channel, so to speak, dedicated to FX on Hulu. So they're basically saying, we value the FX brand so much so that we're going to basically, if you take it in like Disney speak, when you launch Disney+, there's like the four different channels, right? Marvel, Lucasfilm, and Star Wars, Pixar, and Nat Geo. Those are the four big brands on Disney+. Well, Hulu now is saying... We are part of the Disney family. We are the home for FX. So, this is one of those channels, so to speak, on Hulu. What other channels will be on Hulu, I don't know, but they've got, you know, Handmaid's Tale. They will have all of the FX original shows the day after they air on the linear networks. And of course, they will have these four shows Devs, A Teacher, The Old Man, and Mrs. America as exclusive on FX on Hulu. Yeah. Confusing, yeah, it's, it's super. Exciting. It's the
0: last part that that really is obviously the confusing one because we anticipated and everyone anticipated. We're not being special about that one, but everyone anticipated that that was going to be part of how Hulu was going to brand itself as being different from Disney Plus, is that it was going to be the home for adult mature programming, blah blah blah. But to take these four very high profile shows from FX, you know, I think Mrs America as a limited series. It's star-studded. That one looked like it had, you know, 20 Emmy nominations in the bag. Doesn't even need to premiere, and you know that. And FX people have been talking up devs for a year basically I mean it was
2: m- heavily marketed at Comic-Con last summer
0: and then the old man which everyone's boasting you know Jeff Bridges coming to TV etc those are big high profile FX shows so it's definitely whether it's for good or bad that this is happening it is definitely them making a statement that this is something they are invested in which
2: Yeah, the the other thing that's interesting is, you know, look, for months, we've been talking about what John Landgraf wants to do as part of the Disney family. And the answer to that has always been he wants to keep running FX. He doesn't want to do anything else. Yet there have been rumors circulating for the last couple of months that he was going to take over Hulu. That's not what's happening. Randy Freer is still running Hulu. But John Landgraf, meanwhile, is controlling FX on Hulu. So that one brand channel i don't know what to call it clearly that's happening that he will continue to oversee that so um yeah that's it
0: it is vaguely mysterious and then of course there's all the questions of which of the shows are and are not going to be on the general fx on hulu banner you mentioned shows that were actually good and i interjected with taboo and tyrant but then lots of people on twitter have been Asking where certain things are, like, for example, Terriers or Lights Out. One of Lights my favorites.
2: Out. Also another one of my favorites. So do you
0: have do you have answers or suggestions for why things that people aren't seeing on these lists are probably not on these lists?
2: I mean, look, as we record this, this news is like an hour old. I have no idea of, of what's happening, on um, why some shows are included here and why some aren't. Terriers and, and Lights Out you know, are two of my favorite one and done FX shows. You know, I I can't imagine there's, there's like a big demand to see those, but I also don't know what's going on. Like who's got streaming rights to those, if that's even a deal that that's being worked out. One big omission that's not listed here is American Crime Story, which is obviously Ryan Murphy's Emmy winning franchise. American Horror Story, however, is included here. So that's a big question mark, too. I mean, as I understand it, there are still Netflix deals on some of these. I think American Crime Story is one of them. I'm unclear if Netflix, when they made their $300 million deal with Ryan Murphy, bought out the back end of American Crime Story and owns that now. I don't know. So I, I, you know, the release says that there will be more than 40 FX shows on Hulu. When you count up the four that they're adding, the two other ones from FXX plus all of the library titles, you get 36. Obviously the math doesn't compute. It means that there's other deals that aren't done yet. And probably some, I would guess, some other originals in the works there, too, that could, whether or not they've been announced yet or they're still in development or those deals are still being worked out. I would imagine that there will be more shows that move from FX to Hulu as FX on Hulu originals, meaning not airing on the Linear Network. But as I understand it, all of the current shows that have been announced that are already and have already aired on FX, those will stay on the Linear Network first and, of course, stream the next day on Hulu. But new titles coming in, that's where you could see some movement.
0: Yeah. Other things that aren't on the list currently are, let's see, it doesn't appear that Feud is on the list. Doesn't appear that Nip Tuck is on the list doesn't appear that there was one other that i just had in I mean, my there's mind
2: there's a lot i mean fx <laughs> has done a lot of incredible shows in its 17 year history but the bulk of those programs are going to move on are going to stream exclusively on hulu and this Justi- is
0: justified that's the other one that i was right noticing. and i'm sure justified
2: there. has an svat deal if you look around the landscape it's got it if i had to guess it's probably streaming on netflix or amazon but this is the latest move that we're seeing for disney pulling back its titles for its own platform and this is them investing in hulu
0: Very interesting, and we will follow
2: this story as it develops. I can't wait to talk to John Landgraf. So if you're listening, call me. Which takes us up to our third topic. Disney Plus is launching November 12th.
0: Number three.
2: Stop us if you heard us, but this is the second streaming service to launch this month. You've got two more coming in April and May with Peacock and HBO Max. But Disney is the biggest of all of them. Obviously, Apple's got the big brand awareness, but Disney... This platform has been considered the frontrunner since their their presentation earlier this year. It's a cup of coffee a month, and it boasts perhaps the most impressive library of any streamer, past, present, or future, with all of its Marvel titles, including Avengers Endgame they announced this week will stream there. Star Wars, the whole library, plus The Mandalorian and Pixar and all of Disney's animated classics from the vault, which I'm very excited about, plus 600 episodes of The Simpsons. And oh, Jesus, you get the idea. It's got everything that that diehard fanboys and families want. On top of that, Marvel and National Geographic. It's there's so much content here.
0: It's funny the way they keep adding things.
2: Yeah. By the way, Avatar also streaming, by the way,
0: Avatar, by the way, Avengers Endgame, you thought it wasn't going to be available for a little bit later. Now it'll be there for, you know, for premiere date as well. We're just going to keep throwing stuff at you. And unlike Apple TV Plus, Disney's just coming in with this huge library, but I would also say, unlike Apple TV+, they're coming in with, I would say, less hype associated with the original programming they're premiering with. Does that seem fair?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, they've been marketing this a great deal. I mean, it's it's everywhere you look. There's billboards, there's targeted ads on Instagram. I mean, it's everywhere. Um, There's a great story in the New York Times a couple weeks ago about their efforts to market this platform. But, you know, I feel like Apple has just been so much the talk of the town because this is a brand new space for them. Originals is something they've obviously tried for two plus years to get into and, you know, and had early struggles in that space, which we've talked about endlessly.
0: Well, Apple also rolled out with the stars. So they rolled out with Jen and Reese. They rolled out with Aquaman, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, I think a lot of us remain a little bit confused as to what. Apple TV's brand is other than kind of big whereas Disney Plus is rolling out with a very clear sense of what its brand is, you know, about most of the stuff they are rolling out next week is associated directly with established IP and properties and for the most part you probably know if you want to watch these things.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, look, my wife and I have already signed up. She is probably one of the biggest Marvel fans I've I've met and DC fans I should say. She works on Batwoman. I should probably clarify, but she's a big Star Wars fan. We, we sign up for this. We've got three-year-old nieces who are diehard Dis- being raised anyway as diehard Disney fans. Have you met me, by the way? It's very clear who they're targeting. The bigger question is if they'll be able to reach subscribers beyond those core businesses, beyond families and fanboys.
0: That That's a pretty big uh, core business. Even if they only reach those people, they are probably yeah. doing just fine. Um, I have not yet subscribed. I probably need to subscribe, and part of the reason why I need to subscribe is because Disney Plus is not making their biggest new show available to critics. That's right.
2: The Mandalorian will not be sent out to critics, which is an odd choice. My only reasoning that I can think of is it's so high profile that they don't need reviews.
0: And I suspect that. like Game
2: of Thrones, you know, when when HBO stopped sending out screeners early a couple of seasons ago.
0: And I suspect that is what the answer is. It, it, It leaves me feeling a little sad, but I will still be watching The Mandalorian next Tuesday with America. And I will write my review based on that. And yeah, but I've seen a lot. I've seen a few of the the littler Disney Plus programs that are going to be premiering next week. And some of them are a little on the interesting side, I guess.
2: Yeah. Well, why don't you walk us through some of the unscripted stuff there? You know, things like Encore for, hosted by Kristen Bell and then World According to Jeff Goldblum, The Imagineering Story, Disney's Fairytale Weddings. The latter was an import from Freeform after it crashed and burned there and nobody watched that. Well, what, what, have you, what did you what you think of the unscripted stuff?
0: Well, there's a lot of imports from things within the family, which is part of the advantage of having the family because the world, according to Jeff Goldblum, was announced as a Nat Geo show uh, and now it is Disney And it's a thoroughly charming show that probably is better suited for the Disney Plus pro- platform because... Jeff Goldblum is many things, and he is an inquisitive and curious sort, but he is not necessarily the person who is going to educate you on all of the various things that the world, according to Jeff Goldblum, is exploring, which in the opening episodes, and I've seen four, include sneakers, tattoos, ice cream, and denim. Jeff Goldblum has interest in all of these things, and he is, he is such an amusing and genuine and quirky and vaguely crazy presence that I found the four episodes I watched completely charming And yet at the end of each of the episodes, I was like, well, did I actually learn anything from anything that he was doing in that episode? And the answer is almost completely no, not really. And yet I would keep watching it because he is just he's he's totally entertaining and he's totally what he is. So if you think the idea of Jeff Goldblum going around in his turtlenecks, uh, randomly breaking into song whenever he wants to, interrupting interviews to quote from Shakespeare and Robert Frost, you know, if you find that to be an amusing prospect... Strongly recommended. Um, Encore, if you are a theater kid, and I was a theater kid in high school, it is so totally going to be in your wheelhouse. Basically, the premise is Kristen Bell, who you may remember from earlier in this podcast re-signing for Gossip Girl, uh, is kind of the presenter. She really has nothing to do with it. it. The gimmick is high school theater productions from years earlier reunite and in five days have to restage the theater production. And so it has the element of a high school reunion where everyone's getting back together and people who dated back in the day or hooked up behind the bleachers back in the day have to encounter each other again and also have to deal with the fact that maybe they weren't really all that good at, you know, singing and dancing back in their musical theater days. It is not perfect. I think it's a format that could use a lot of refining, but it's a format that hits me so completely in my sweet spot that... I love this show. I I love it for all of its flaws. And I look forward to seeing more episodes of it because it is so appealing. And if you are the kind of person who did theater in high school, either as the dream of making it onto Broadway yourself or just because you wanted to hang out with the other outcasts at your high school, this will bring it all flooding back to you and you will want to be emailing Disney Plus volunteering your high school productions to be a part of it. So uh, Disney Plus, if you're listening, this Perchick from uh, 1994's Fiddler on the Roof at Leminster High School in Leminster Massachusetts. I can't hit any of the notes and I sure can't do any of the dances and I am happy to revisit it.
2: In related news, Dan, um, please send me photos from that production.
0: There are remarkably few available photos, which I find somewhat reassuring. Whatever. I was, you know, I was the Bolshevik Re- revolutionary. I was basically wearing a funny little hat and a puffy shirt. It wasn't like I had to have a fake beard for that one. So. It wasn't like
2: you were dressed up as Bustafer Jones from Cats. No. And shout out to my friend who actually did that and sent me a photo.
0: Do Do we figure publicist Rob Moynihan is the listener? If so,
2: hi, Rob. Hi, Rob. If hi, Bustopher. Not,
0: if not, whatever.
2: If not, yeah. <laughs> we just added you. Any, anyway, well, um, you know, it sounds like there's some interesting stuff. But look, the big question is going to be Mandalorian and, of course, High School Musical, the update there, which has a title that's so ridiculous. I can't even I, I refuse to even say it.
0: High School Musical, the musical, the reality show, the musical.
2: Uh, mixed dish, mixed dish, mixed dish. I don't know. Anyway, well, that should take us right to our next topic. Up next, it's time for another showrunner spotlight segment.
0: Number four.
2: Joining us this week is prolific writer and producer John Wells. The showrunner currently has the upcoming 10th season of Showtime's Shameless and has the fifth of TNT's Animal Kingdom on the way. His impressive credits include China Beach, ER, The West Wing, Third Watch, and Southland. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for asking me.
2: Let's start with Shameless. This is—season 10 is your first without Emmy Rossum. What was it like for you guys as a writer's room and then as a production with the full cast coming back— for the first time without her.
1: You know, I've uh, had the good fortune in my career to have many times in the past when people that I really loved and characters who are wonderful left shows that I was on. So you kind of look at it in two different ways. One is a friend and somebody that you respect and admire and enjoy, uh, have enjoyed spending time with like Emmy, leaving, so you have kind of a sense of just, you know, loss. And in the writer's room, there are advantages to when characters leave from long-running shows, because it means that you have an opportunity to tell other kind of stories. And frankly, with modern families, which is what the show is about, you know, a very impoverished modern family, but mm-hmm. modern families, uh, people leave. And then the group that's remaining has to readjust and take on those responsibilities or not. So... It it's a challenge and yet at the same time it's kind of an exciting one from a writing point of view because we've done over 120 episodes now so it gave us new story to tell.
0: Well what did you learn in terms of what Fiona had kind of contributed to the structure and tone of the show and what losing her cost you but maybe what it gained you? Yeah I mean I think the main thing for
1: Fiona is that she was a mother figure and the big sister but also somebody that everybody depended on and they've all grown up. I mean our actors have literally grown up on the show so we have kids that you know were eight and nine years old when we, when we hired them who are now driving and have their own apartments so <laughs> oh my um which is a little terrifying but that's the way that uh, life works and so the thing we were t- dealing with is someone who's been so central to the family leaving and how do they actually who takes on those responsibilities does anybody do the people who are left behind feel that anybody needs to take them on you know in the case of uh of shameless debbie who's uh you know Ben the younger daughter feels it like now it must be her responsibility to take on all those things and her older brothers are not all that enthusiastic about their younger sister assuming that she's now running the roost
0: so Well, how much does that freak you out when you're in the writer's room thinking back on how young these kids were in season (laughs) one and now some of the hijinks you have them up to in this new season? Because whenever I think back, oh, Carl was so young back then. Well, sure not anymore, you know.
2: I mean, he's got a beard. Yeah, he's got a beard he (laughs) shaves. He
1: he drives a car. He has a house uh, that he bought. So... Yeah, uh, you know, it was particularly difficult with Ethan, who plays Carl, because when he first moved out here to do the show, he's a kid from Chicago that we just kind of cast out of Chicago because he had a wonderful face. But he was a kid and he didn't have any place to go. And my son's the same age. And so when he first came out, he spent a lot of weekends actually at our house. So I would come downstairs uh, Saturday morning; they'd be sitting in front of the TV watching Ren and Stimpy or something. <laughs> and so to now see him as a fully functioning as an adult is is uh, fully functioning is, might be a little yeah, yeah, quotation yeah, a little marks with all show. of the Gallagher's. So. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think it's um, it's that sense you get of having to adjust to people growing up. You know, on our show in particular, it's difficult because kids that I've known since they were eight years old are now fully sexual beings because they're 18, 19-year-olds, and particularly within the structure of this show, it's important that they be fully sexually functioning human beings, but they're also the kids that I cast when they were still, like, you know, in fifth grade, so uh, I've had to do all those sort of parental adjustments to trying to accept uh, who they really are.
2: Yeah, you know, in (laughs) a larger sense this season, you know, Cameron Moynihan has, last year he left, and then... He came back for the finale. And then, of course, he's back now as a series regular alongside Noel Fisher, who is, of course, a fan favorite. I mean, I think, you know, we, we talked about everybody's the, favorite. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> so we talked for the hundredth episode and you mentioned you were getting death threats after Noel left the show.
1: You know, uh, the the whole Noel, uh, you know, the Mickey Ian story, yeah. the Galovich story, there's a very passionate fan base who's associated with it. Noel wanted at one point to go off and look and do some other things. You know, I think he felt he'd explored the character and then and the same with Cameron. They were both feeling like they wanted to try and do some other things, which is a perfectly natural thing for actors to want to do. Certainly what Emmy wanted to do last year. And then oftentimes, as happens, they come back and say, you know what, I kind of miss everybody and it's a great time. And so just like we do in families, people come in and out. So it's been great to have them back. We've had problems with our social media because the Galoviches, who are the people who are so just mm-hmm. so invested in very vocal base yeah. and and ian and mickey have taken over actually the social media a couple of times and so um <laughs> it's it's wonderful to be doing a show that has that kind of passionate fan base but uh you know they are fictional characters yes of course <laughs> yeah.
2: and the guys are both back this season as regulars what are you looking forward to exploring with them especially in, you know without fiona around that feels like like maybe some stability which is hard to say about two people who just got out of jail or presumably just got out of jail Uh, i'm guessing here
1: interestingly enough you know our two uh, those two characters are the the real love story on the show and have been the love story throughout the show and that's something I'm, i'm proud of having been able to write they're not easy for each other there's a lot of back and forth and ups and downs they've had a real relationship and you know, in the world that we're living in now, uh, it's great to actually be able to do that with those two characters. You know, I think we've seen across all of the entertainment landscape people really trying to writers, directors, actors, trying to commit to the world that we really live in, which includes all different kinds of gender identifications, relationships, racial relationships. We just are trying. I think everybody is is really trying hard to now say this is what our world
0: is, looks like and what it needs to look like in what we put on television. You've mentioned the family and people come and go thing a couple times now. But on a purely practical level, how frequently have you had a story that was arced out in a specific way on the board that you've simply been unable to do in the way you intended to do it because people wanted to see their other options? In the world. We don't, I, wish, I wish I could tell you that we arc out
1: far enough in advance <laughs> that somebody at the end of a season telling us that they don't want to be there is difficult. We try to. We, we do plan far enough ahead that by the middle of the seasons each year. I can have conversations with all the various actors and make certain that they're returning. And if they're not, then we can kind of address it at the end of the season. Certainly, Emmy leaving, I was very hopeful that she wouldn't. I love her and and uh, wanted her to stay and wanted the character to stay. But she, early on, let me know that she was ready to do something else. And uh, so that gave us the you know better part of seven or eight episodes to then incorporate what we're going to do at the end of the year. The difficult ones are when... You know, like on West Wing when John Spencer died very suddenly and we had, you know, six other episodes that were written or were mostly written. And, you know, over a Christmas vacation that year, uh, our Christmas hiatus that year, I was rewriting a number of episodes to deal with, you know, the death of a friend at the same time that um, we're dealing with the death of a character.
2: You know, and looking ahead, you know, Bill Macy has said multiple times that, you know, and this is, of course, before his very, we'll say, challenging summer But he said that he wanted to do one, maybe two more seasons, which would mean 10 and potentially one more 11 after this. Given everything that he's got going in his personal life right now, is that still the case? I mean, what conversations have you had with him about his future with the
1: show? Well, Bill and I work very closely together. I love him. I've worked with him for a long time. For people who have a long memory, he was in the first season of ER, And that was after we'd done a pilot together. I'd known him in the theater. So I'll sit down with him at the end of this year and see. He has one more year on his existing contract with the show. So assuming that Showtime wants to do some more, I know we'll do at least one more year with Bill. And then he'll just have to decide what he wants to do. It's been a challenging time for them. They are both close friends who I care deeply about. And, uh, you know, so it hasn't been easy for them.
0: Well, does the show require him or basically can the family go on? regardless of what happens to him
1: you know i always want to say the show can't go on without anybody particularly (laughs) in this show because it's such a great cast and as a writer it's so much fun to write for you just don't want anybody to leave but i felt the same thing about when george clooney left er in year five and we did 10 more years so (laughs) i want everybody to stay i come out of ensemble theater where we you know you work with your acting company and you all work hand in hand and so i never want anybody to leave
2: the one thing this, that the show does so well is reflect middle America and working class America, looking ahead to to what viewers can expect from this season. What are some of the larger socialist topics that you plan to explore this year? Yeah,
1: you know, One of the great things about doing Shameless has been that we've been able to explore all different kinds of satirical subjects. The political environment in the country has made that easier, actually, because things that would have been way too wild for us to pitch a few years ago, now we can actually pitch and realize that we're close enough to what's actually going on that we can make fun of it. But this year, we're, we're going to continue to do with the immigration issues. There's is a big storyline about immigration that exists, again, satirically, where we're trying to make fun of a lot of what's going on in the country and how ridiculous some of these initiatives are. Um, but also uh, continuing to talk about, you know, gay relationships, gay marriage and just how difficult it is to be on the poverty line in, in America, how tough it is to just survive from day to day, how many, you know, how many sort of extraordinary impediments have put in your way.
2: You mentioned gay marriage. Obviously, that's something that I'm particularly <laughs> interested in, but that would seem to imply that Ian and Mickey would ha- are maybe exploring something more serious for their relationship. There is
1: certainly discussion to be had where one is more enthusiastic than the other.
2: And as you, you know, looking, knowing that you've got Macy for at least one more year, do you have an ultimate end game? You know, when you hear, when I, whenever I hear characters on a long running show planning a, a wedding, that especially characters like these, <laughs> it also makes me think: is this kind of building toward an end game? Knowing that you've got Macy for one more. Is that in the back of your mind?
1: Well, what's always in the back of my mind is not wanting to leave the audience feeling as if we didn't finish stories in a way that made them satisfied with having committed to so you know to such a long period of time for watching the show. And fortunately, in this case, the the people at sh- at Showtime, Gary Levine and David Nevins, have been really clear that they're going to give us a long notice of our last year so that we can leave people where we want the audience to feel like they didn't just get stopped in the, you know, that somebody ripped out the last third of your novel and you never got to read it. So I've kind of had a, I didn't think this show was going to last to be quite honest. I, I, (laughs) I thought that Shameless was, we were far enough out there that it was, and it was hard enough to set it up. It took us seven years to get it made. So I didn't have a lot of confidence it was going to last a long time. So I've kind of had an idea about how it would, I wanted it to end, particularly with Bill's character with Frank for a long time. We'll see if that still makes sense by the time we actually get to the end of the show.
2: Yeah. I, I always wonder, you know, especially right now, you know, Modern Family is airing its, its final season. I think a lot about how family dramas come to an end, you know, like, look, Big Bang Theory wasn't, didn't start as a family comedy and it ended as one. But, you know, that, that end with a sense of life goes on. Is that, Kind of the approach, you know. I'm not going to ask for spoilers here, but in a big picture approach, is that something that's yeah? Well, what I, you're I think thinking?
1: that all of the shows that are really family shows, and I would argue that everything that I've been involved with is a family show, whether that be, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to start my the kind of the, the upswing on my career, at China Beach, but uh, with ER and with West Wing and Third Watch, Southland, everything else we've done that. These are family shows, and we want to feel as if you just – if you turned the right corner in Chicago, you could run into them five years from now, and they'd still be Frank and still be at a bar somewhere. Or, you know, you'd run into people uh, from ER if you went back into the into that part of the city. So we we Crossover. really try and do that. Yeah, crossovers.
0: <laughs> but there's the question of if you ever saw a possibility of – I don't want to say the Gallagher's becoming fully gentrified, which has become a theme on the show at various different <laughs> times, but sort of how settled they could ever be and whether that would be satisfying for you. You know, it, would it be satisfying if suddenly they moved up in economic class, everybody cut their hair and started going to office jobs? Would that be a would that be a happy ending for these people? It could be a happy ending. I don't think it's a very realistic ending. I mean— yeah.
1: um, Part of what we've tried to talk about in our own not particularly subtle way on Shameless is that this notion of a meritocracy for a large part of our of our population is not really uh, real. It's not really true. There isn't a meritocracy. There are many many things impediments that hold people back from moving up this economic ladder, and that's only getting worse and worse, not better or better. In you know this sense of in, of in, in income inequality that exists in the country, so a happy ending for the Gallagher's is just a little bit more stability. Yeah. And honestly, that's really what it is for most families in this country. We, we're approaching a point where all you really hope for is having a little bit of money in the bank where a disaster, just a car accident, uh, you know, a, a medical issue doesn't destroy your all of your financial stability. So that's a victory for 50, 60% of the country.
2: Yeah, you know, elsewhere beyond Shameless, you're also running... Animal Kingdom over at TNT, which is, of course, part of the Warner Media family. We talk a lot on this podcast about what's happening within that portfolio of networks, um, especially as they launch their streamer, HBO Max. What have they told you about the future of TNT and... Originals there and how it fits into the larger Warner Media portfolio.
1: You know, I'm not on the inside of uh, of uh, what's going on at Warner Media. Uh, you know, I, I have met John Stankey. I think he's a smart guy, but uh, he does not ask me into the corner office at any time for my opinions. He'll um, just
2: pay you the nine figures to, <laughs> to develop thirteen more projects. As long as and, we keep making yeah. stuff,
1: um, so. But at TNT, all I can say is that they've told us to keep making uh, Animal Kingdom and they've asked us to come in and pitch other things to them. They'd love us to give them another show. Um, For the linear network? For the linear network. So they seem committed to that. Uh, What these larger policies are, I think, is going to depend a great deal on what happens over the next year and a half. I mean, we're in a, a very dynamic
0: industry right now. But are you feeling like there's a sea change internally in terms of what the branding is and how you fit within that? We've been told, and
1: I think this is in large part because Animal Kingdom is an uh, excellent show that that they can actually work off of from the sports program that they have. So we get a lot of play during the NBA playoffs and before we start in the summer, and that seemed to be a, a great synergy for them. The sense across a lot of the basic cable networks over the last few years has been to program for summers over the last couple of decades, you know, summer uh, entertainment. How will that be impacted by the availability of all different kinds of entertainment through the streamers at all, all the time is anybody's guess.
2: Yeah. And, you know, as part of this, your recent nine figure deal with WarnerMedia, you are turning John Wells Productions into a mini studio. We talked yeah. earlier this year about <laughs> uh, you're, you're developing something crazy. It's like 13 different shows, which is would be by far the most you've Developed at the same time, as far as I understand it,
1: well, the development cycle within the company over the years has been that we have a number of things that are in development, but when we 're ready to make them, we make them. so I would say right now that active number of things we have is larger than it 's been in the past, although we 've normally had a number of things in development. The difference now is that because there 's so much uh, you know it used to be that there was a limited shelf space for mm-hmm. shows so You didn't want to overdevelop because you didn't want to be making promises to the people that you were developing with that you could get something going when you didn't really think there are enough places to get it going. Right now we have the opposite problem, which is there are so much shelf space. Everybody's competing for this part of the market share, you know, of that marketplace. And so there's a lot of things getting made. I think it's probably the number of shows getting made are going to go up. It will inevitably come down because eventually everyone's going to have to figure out how to make money. And a lot of these, a lot of the services are losing billions of dollars a year and plan to over the next few years. But right now there's a lot of opportunities. So all the people that we work with, the partners, everybody's got ideas. I feel very confident that we're in a marketplace where these ideas can get made. Um, and before it's been hard to take on projects that and waste someone else's time when you were pretty certain you know that it wasn't going to go forward I, I don't think that's the environment that we're in right now
0: well for you with your particular background as a writer as a producer sometimes as a director as well how do you determine when you look at a 13 show development slate which things you're going to want to continue to show run which things you'll be happy to pass along to protégés etc
1: um, most of the things we're developing I'm developing with other people that I have a lot of confidence they're actually going to be able to run their own shows We've either been working together in the past, and I've seen, you know, they're very much able to do it or have already done it, or it's people that we're working with now who I'm certain are ready to step up. And then what we'll do within the company is continue to provide the producerial services and support that we do very well. The biggest challenge for showrunners for first-time or second-time showrunners when they come up is simply the managerial side of it, usually not the creative side of it, so... Uh, we can provide a lot of support within the existing company that we have. We have about 20 employees in the company, and we can uh, really help people succeed, which is, I think, what the job really should be if it's not your own show that you're you're writing or, or running.
0: Well, what do you think, though, when you see a producer like a Greg Berlanti with 20 shows currently on air? When you think of what your own ability is to multitask, how do you kind of relate to those sides of things?
1: You know, I recently had coffee with Greg and we talked about it and I told him he just needed to take a vacation. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I greatly admire his and his team's ability to do that many shows. I don't think that we'll be in the position where I'm going to feel comfortable that we can provide services at this point for 20 shows. That's a personal choice, you know, about what you think you can actually do and how much commitment that I'm making to the people that I work with that I'll be able to really be there for them.
0: Well, one thing I've always found interesting about you as a writer is the the sort of wide variety of shows that you've done and the way that you've kind of shifted your voice based on the show. When you think sort of step back and look at the John Wells voice that has covered Shameless, that's covered West Wing, et cetera, et cetera, how do you kind of look at what your voice is as a writer? I don't ever think of it at all, but thank you <laughs> for making me. I, you know,
1: i like to write about characters, interesting people. I mean, we pick up ideas or things to do based on someone coming in and telling me a story that that catches my attention. I'm about a character or characters that I think I might be interested in being involved in writing about. And also one that's going to have a large enough well of stories and and character to do. We we tend not to be involved in high concept pieces. Because they they're plot driven rather than character driven, so that doesn't mean you can't you don't have to have wonderful characters within that plot, but the the plot itself is kind of the driving narrative for it. And so we're looking for things where there are characters that we could write about for ten years, or or not. Like this is one that just is ten episodes, like uh, the version of uh, Stephanie Land's uh, pl- uh, book, wonderful book called Made that we're doing for Netflix, is not a ten year. Uh, it's not 10 years of story in that book. There may be other ways to do additional seasons of it, but it won't be uh, with these the same characters from the book. So there are all these other opportunities for storytelling now that there weren't a while ago.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned Netflix. I mean, that's an, an outlet where four has become the new six, which we've, we've talked mm-hmm. about here before. But, you know, the appeal of doing stuff for Netflix, obviously a lot of producers talk about it's a short order. There's a little bit more creative leeway. You you know you you don't have the pressure of having to worry about ratings, which isn't necessarily something you you think about for for Showtime either. But you know, in a larger sense, I wonder of all the stuff that you're developing, would you go back and do broadcast again? Would you do a 22 episode broadcast show?
1: Yeah, it's not about the episode, how many episodes, so much. Although it is, it, it's exciting doing 22 episodes, <laughs> or is at one point we were doing 66 because we had three broadcast shows going at once. Oof. It's about just the material that broadcast networks have been prepared to make over the last few, you know, decade or so. Again, it is a different, it's a different world. It hasn't developed in the same way kind of storytelling wise as other things we've done. There have been notable exceptions to that good, you know, the good wife or things, but they are exceptions to what's kind of become the rule. And so you know, I would have never gotten the the version of ER that was as revolutionary at the time as it was uh, to get on NBC. I would never get that on a network now that different from what's there. People, wonderful people, have actually lost their jobs at broadcast networks. And the accusation was that it's too cable. They're too cable. They're trying to do stuff. So the writers and directors, actors that I want to work with are... By and large, not interested in doing broadcast television. And that's because it's not adventurous enough and the medium continues to develop. And as it continues to develop, the people that you want to work with are more interested, not for the prestige necessarily, but for the freedom creatively. The the creative freedom is to tell different kinds of stories, more defined stories, more specific stories. I mean, I'm a big uh, admirer of Pose, and and you could not—I wouldn't know how to take that— into the into the networks when we had four networks to pitch to in 1992 or 94, even at the height of the success of, of ER and West Wing. I would have never gotten anywhere with that. So we live in a world in which all these extraordinary stories are getting told, but they're not getting told on broadcast television
0: by and large. Well, it's, it's so interesting, though, because on one hand, ER, it is just a, a medical procedural. It's, that's what the engine of that show is. And yet, clearly people knew from the pilot that it wasn't just that as you were in the beginning stages of that show what was your sense of it in terms of how it was breaking the rules and if you were to take that to NBC today what would they tell you do you think
1: i think we would actually have the exact some of the exact same problems i mean the big complaints that NBC had which to their in their defense Warren Littlefield's offense and and uh, Don Olmyer's offense who's no longer alive once they saw the audience was responding to it, they, they jumped right on. They were, they were not, they were not uh, prepared to, uh, to refuse the, what the audience was seeing. But I think if I took a show in right now and said the medical personnel, we're not going to really follow in the individual stories of patients. We're only going to follow the medical personnel, and we're never going to talk down to the audience. It's all going to be in medical jargon. We're never going to actually explain what they're talking about. You just have to follow along. I think I would have exactly
0: the same problem. And trying to sell it now. And yet, ER was a huge hit, and it wasn't like a, a slow building hit, it was a huge hit. Immediately, Do you think there's an audience that is saying, give us this, and 25 million of us would still watch something like this if it were actually presented? I think so. I think, however, that the amount of time
1: that it takes to get an audience to find something is very daunting in the broadcast world right now. I think there's still a tremendous amount of pressure on the overnight ratings, which is what the great advantage is when you're trying to build something at some of the streaming services or the paid television networks is that – you have the opportunity to make the whole thing. You know it's going to get aired. There is a period of time in which that piece is going to find an audience or not find an audience. And finding that audience takes a lot longer now than it used to. Shameless is a much bigger hit in year seven than it was in years one through four. And that's
2: largely because of the Netflix window.
1: It went onto Netflix, and a lot of people saw it, and that's been great for Showtime. And it's I've been good for Netflix. They've certainly said that to me. So, so it's the patience. You know, I think we, we, we had, uh, I think, at our height, something around 40 million viewers for ER um, in the second or third year of the season. So that would
0: now take, you know, years. That's to like develop.
2: live 365 <laughs> times yeah. like for every,
0: For every network. For every night, they're not reaching that at this point.
1: Look, uh, we've all worked, all of us have been at this for a while, I've worked on shows that were canceled with numbers that would be the number one show on the air right now. I mean, China Beach went off the air with 16 million viewers. So, um, <laughs> Which is a mega hit <laughs> yeah, by today's so, standard. So look, it's a much more fragmented marketplace. But the, the notion that broadcast, I mean, my and I've said this to any number of people who are in broadcast who are friends of mine saying, you've got to take some big chances. You have to sit for a couple of years on a show that is taking greater chances that is probably going to do very little business in the first year while audiences find it.
0: Okay, and you say that to someone who you know who's in broadcast, what do they respond to you? Yes. We want to,
2: <laughs> but I also think it helps now that that these the broadcast networks now predominantly own all of their programming versus licensing and paying the ex- expensive fees for these, the, you know and the rising costs. It's like you know if if you're willing to take a chance on something creatively and you don't own it, the odds of it continuing beyond season 1 or maybe even season 2 if it's lucky are slim to none.
1: Yeah, the economics just don't yeah. make the same kind of sense. And we're confronting that in an even greater on an even greater scale going forward with, you know, worldwide SVOD companies where basically and this is with, you know, Disney, Disney Fox's most recently uh, circulated profit uh you know definitions that they were asking people to do, and and people may well do. Everyone is just saying, look, we need to own everything. We need to own it in house. We need to be able to use it, repurpose it in and every way we need. If we need to have it on broadcast on Monday and on all of our other uh, channels, you know, ver- various uh, SVOD platforms or their basic cable channels, and available through that for the viewers the next day then we're going to need that because we're trying to get in a very fragmented marketplace enough people to watch something to make it profitable. Yeah.
2: In a larger sense, I I do want to discuss, you know, you are a former president of the WGA West and recently encouraged the Guild to kind of sit back down to the table with the agencies to get back to work on the standoff over affiliated studios and packaging fees. When this all started back in April, did you expect it to go on this long? We're, we're six months plus at this well, point. Well, I
1: don't think anybody expected it to go on this long, including the current leadership. Although I can't speak for them, you know, I worry, and I stated this in some of my uh, in a letter that I wrote to the membership as a ex officio, that I'm concerned that it ultimately may hurt more writers than it helps. That said, you know, there was a very uh, substantial vote to continue this uh, current direction of, of this leadership in this most recent election. So you have to, as a democracy and we're all going to have to uh, simply say that's what the membership wants and that's what we're all going to have to do. But it's, I think it's going on in a for a long time during a period of time in which there's tremendous change in the industry. And I hope that, uh, that it ends up working out for everybody who's involved.
0: From your perspective, are you feeling any sense of progress moving towards something, or is that all happening in a dark room and you're waiting to hear yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm just a member now, so
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly what you've
1: read from uh, what the guild has put out.
2: If you were running the guild at this point, what's the solution here? Is there one? Is there, is it, is it? Well, in every,
1: in every negotiation, there's a solution. I mean, no, no negotiation is successful when one party completely wins because negotiations by necessity are everybody sort of being a little unhappy. Uh, that you didn't get everything that you want. That's a successful negotiation. Otherwise, you run the risk of the people with whom you have negotiated and who have lost, I mean, to use that in quotation marks, feeling as if they have to redeem themselves in some fashion in the future, and that doesn't lead. And you know, the balance of power between one group and another group is, all, is oftentimes changing, and you want negotiating partners that feel as if you have been able to arrive at a solution which, while making no one happy, both parties can live with. So I think ultimately there will have to be some sort of negotiated solution in which the companies involved at the, ATN, the ATA, the the major studios, admit that pack, there have been significant lack of concern over time about how packaging has actually been conducted, and that there need to be real disclosures, ways in which any member who's participating and knows in it agrees to it, sees it. It's in, it's not contributable for the. Companies uh, involved, the the agencies involved, to make to have better definitions than their clients, uh, that makes no sense. And then I have real personal concerns with the the affiliated content companies. I think that it's uh, it is whether or not you're you're not accusing individual people of not being not having good faith, but when you set up a situation in which your employer is also your representative, I think there it's just rife with possibility for conflict and, and unhappiness. And it should have never happened in the first place.
0: Shifting back a little bit towards programming and whatnot, you mentioned that uh Shameless was a show that kind of blew up on Netflix and then couple years ago you had er pop up on hulu and it suddenly rediscovered its audience and also on pop can you feel when something like that happens not just you know the size of the residual check but do you
2: do you, do you notice in the <laughs> this, world these library <laughs> deals are 500 million for global rights to seinfeld
0: um yeah we
1: are in a we're in an arms race and people are doing something they'll be we'll, we will get to the end of that arms race my hope is that it doesn't mean that That all of that money is going to only a few places, and so all of the other shows, which are very deserving of also being properly compensated for, suffer because all of the money is gone. Um, You know, the music business has turned into a superstar business in which only the superstars are getting the money, and everybody else is really difficult to make a living as a musician. That is not healthy for a business and it's certainly not healthy for the entertainment business. So I hope it doesn't suck that those deals while they're impressive don't suck so much money out of the system that the all of the shows that were not number 1 when Seinfeld was on the air or when Big Bang has been on the air but were 1 through 20 or, or 2 through 20 are still get evaluations that are worthy of the contributions that went into it um and then i completely forgot what else you asked me in
0: answering that (laughs) just if you can feel if you can feel the shift in the waters when an er pops up on hulu and suddenly half of twitter is is revisiting the entire show again it's very odd uh in the case of of shameless we felt it right
1: away um the number of people who discovered it, and frankly, much to, I think, Showtime's valid irritation, people come up to me and say, I love your show on uh, Netflix. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's not on Netflix, actually. It's, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's on Showtime. We felt it when it came on, primarily because we'd never had any security at our location in Chicago. We never had to worry about it. Nobody ever knew we were there. And, it, and then once we'd been on Netflix, we actually, the first summer that we were there, We had about, uh, I don't know, 120, 130 kids come down to the neighborhood from places that they shouldn't have come down from to to the neighborhood where we shoot. So we had to, you know, get real security. We had to start doing the Beatles getting in and out of the hotels in Chicago where our crew members or our cast members were bringing them through the kitchen. Those are very uh, dramatic (laughs) changes that you notice. The Hulu of it all uh, with ER to me has been amazing. Because that audience and the people who talk to me about it are, I assume when it went on to Hulu, it would be a nostalgia play for people who had watched it, you know, with their parents growing up or had watched it themselves in college or whatever. Uh, But it's actually the audience at Hulu is very young and they are discovering the show for the first time They're. They gave us the statistics at one point last year, and I don't really remember them exactly. But they were the average age was in their twenties of who was actually watching the air. So they a lot of them weren't even born when it was first on the air. So that's the thing that we're discovering about these libraries is that there are all different kind of things that are becoming available on streaming that you can find, you know. And I think that that's an extraordinary uh, that's an extraordinary thing for storytelling. It's like having a wonderful library of all the plays that were ever done on Broadway that you could suddenly hit a button and access and watch something from years ago.
0: Well given that and given the overall nature of the business where nothing is truly dead and everything is be- being rebooted constantly are there loose conversations someone saying, "Hey, you know, NBC would still love those last season of ER ratings right now. Has anyone even broached that as an in jest?" Well,
1: they more than jested about it about eight or nine years ago, (laughs) where they very much wanted us to bring back ER and bring back West Wing, and there were numerous requests to have those conversations. Uh, That was during that period of time when there were a lot of things that were just beginning to be rebooted. Uh, In both of those cases, I've resisted it, and uh, my partners with it have resisted it. Uh, ER, we did a ton of them. (laughs) We did a lot of them, um, and I was very proud of it. We were all very proud of it. Um, I don't know what the upside is to bringing it back. And in West Wing, I think the case over the last few years where Aaron and I, Tommy, we were all regularly approached about, will we put West Wing back on the air? And I've been very concerned about doing it because I think it's a reaction to the current political environment. And people don't really remember how balanced the arguments were at West Wing. We had as many Republicans involved in writing the show as we had Democrats. We had lots of centrists. And- And so we were trying to present a balanced view of government, and I think now if we brought it back, it would simply be accused of being a liberal attempt to respond to what's going on in Washington now. And I think that would devalue what the show was, which was something that we're all very
0: proud of at the time. But the show always, to some degree, was also kind of a fairy tale. You know, wouldn't it be great if government worked this way? don't you think at this moment what we need more than anything is a fairy tale of wouldn't Mm -hmm. it be great if government worked again yeah and fortunately the existing west wing running on
1: netflix kind of does that and i (laughs) hear regularly from you know people who come up and say i'm watching all the west wing again with my 14 year old my 16 year old my 18 year old to show them what it's supposed to be like and that's very gratifying but to to take the show and put it back into the political arena as a bit of a political football in this highly polarized age, I think, would be, could be very detrimental to what we were creating in the first place.
2: Uh, still on the reboot train here, there's <laughs> been uh, some quiet rumblings about Southland. Is that something that you would be interested in doing, or
1: I would love to redo Southland. Southland is a show that we ended before we should have, in the yeah. sense that it uh, we had more to do. It it didn't last as long as it should, and it's an extraordinary cast, and everybody said they'd love to come back. I mean, and it I,
2: feels like one of those shows. Not an I apologize to yeah, yeah, interrupt you, but it feels like one of those shows that that was canceled because these networks didn't know. How people were actually watching television with DVR. I mean, I think it was TiVo then, you know. But oh, you know, TiVo. People...
1: I remember the little TV. Just yeah, now. exactly. But like nobody really <laughs> knew how
2: how can, um, viewing habits were changing and evolving, <laughs> and or how to measure them. And
1: it got caught in the middle. Yeah, of I that like that's transition. I was, yeah. yeah, I would do it in a second. I've approached Hulu a couple of times because they have the the rights for it now, the streaming rights for it now, and I would love to get when there's a moment, I would love to get uh, Warner Media to really consider redoing the show. The cast has all told us, you know, they all have other things that they do, but that there would be real interest on the part of everybody at least return for some more. So that would be fabulous.
0: And so the last question that we always love asking people, because we know just how busy you are, what do you actually have time to watch on TV? <laughs> oh, I actually watch a lot of TV. Uh, one of the things that's
1: been frustrating for me the last years is I took a great deal of pride when I was doing a lot of broadcast television of watching one episode of Everything New that I went on the, the air. I tried the same thing. And, uh, and I did it, and I was proud of it. And, and because of that, I actually saw a lot of actors and kept track of a lot of actors that we then put into other things and directors. It's th- completely impossible now to watch an episode of everything. So, you know, recently I've been watching a lot of things that everybody does. I mean, Fleabag was so extraordinary. This last year, Succession, Mark Mylod, who we did Shameless with, has been the uh, executive producing director, executive producer on the show. I've been watching that. I was, I put off a little bit because of, of some things in my family history watching Unbelievable. And then just my wife and I sat down and Watched it, and I thought it was an extraordinary piece of work, just a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. I love Pose, and then I watch a little bit of everything. A friend of mine uh, writes, Steve Knight writes uh, Peaky Blinders, so I always pull up some more Peaky. Um, And then last night I had not yet started to watch Dark, which a number of people told me I should watch, so I was watching some Dark last night. But it is a remarkable thing. Like last night I sat in front of my Netflix screen and scrolled, and realize that I scrolled for 45 minutes and then I didn't have time to watch anything. So, <laughs> so I got to stop doing that. I got to do it on my computer where I try to find exactly what I want, just put it into my queue, and then, uh, and then just watch it that it's way. It's the way
0: that back in the day people used to <laughs> actually go into bookstores and suddenly find themselves wandering around for two hours yeah. and maybe not get anything. But you can do that on Netflix where you don't have a clue what two-thirds of the show are. And you're like, what, what is – okay, fine. I'll autoplay the trailer. Why not? Yeah, what is it? <sighs>
2: Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. The 10th season of Shameless kicks off Sunday on Showtime.
0: Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you. Number Number five.
2: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include Season 10 of Shameless, the new installment of Rick and Morty, one of my favorites, over on Adult Swim, Dublin Murders on Stars, and Showtime's Back to Life. Dan, what you got?
0: I already covered all of the Disney Plus things that I've seen thus far, so you can go back to that segment for that. Uh, I have seen the first episode of the new season of Rick and Morty, and it is... It is one of those deeply involved, twisted multiverse kind of episodes in which it just becomes deliriously, wonderfully complicated for the entire episode. And you have to turn off your you either have to turn off or turn on your brain one way or the other. If you want to follow everything that's happening. Um, No Pickle Rick. Pickle Uh, Rick. Fault. (laughs) Oh, on the list of great shows with scary fan bases. And yes, I'm looking at you, Leslie. <laughs> okay,
2: it's fun. It is a fun show.
0: It is definitely a fun show. And the first episode back is a fun episode. It has, it has definitely a few images that are hilarious and a few images that are twisted and screwed up enough that it may haunt me for a little while. And after you watch the episode, you will perhaps know which is which. Um, definitely a solid episode. Welcome back. Well, Rick and
2: Adult Swim sent out Funkos to press of Shred- shrimp rick and shrimp morty does that have something to do with it
0: definitely shrimp rick and shrimp morty that is a thing that is in this episode there's also wasp rick wasp rick is tied to some of the disturbing images i will spoil no more because i'm not really sure i could um so anyway so that is definitely a thing worth watching if you are a person who likes such things i also was interested by and kind of dug showtimes back to life which comes from daisy haggerty and it's uh It's the latest in a sort of run of kind of cringy British comedies that we're all just going to compare to Fleabag because that's what we do. It's about a woman who gets out of jail after nearly two decades and has to put her life back together. And there's a long kind of mystery attempting to say what it was that she was in prison for. And it's a show that has a lot of things going on. Not all of them work at the same time and work as well. But it made me periodically laugh, periodically scratch my head. And I was generally interested by the direction the show was going. So it's worth checking out. That's Showtime's Back to Life. And uh, yeah. What
2: about Shameless? Have you watched the season 10 premiere?
0: I have watched the season 10 premiere of Shameless, which I have to admit, I have watched after not having watched a couple previous seasons just because I fell behind and is the first season without my beloved Emmy Rossum, um, who surely I missed. But let me tell you, it is easy to hop back in and to embrace the chaos of the Gallagher's and their life, and. I also have to say that if you haven't watched for a couple of years, checking back in is truly disturbing because a lot of the people who were who were basically 10 or 11 when the show started have become of age and they're now doing Twisted Gallagher type shit as well. And yeah, there, there's a lot of discomfort which is built into that and which John Wells talked about in our excellent interview with John Wells.
2: Yeah, I've uh, been a fan of this show since day one. I've not missed an episode. Um, I've seen the first I think it's three or four It's still great. I was very concerned what the show would be like after Emmy and it still works. I mean, there are characters that are a little bit more grating within their new roles. Uh, I'm not going to single anyone out here, but it's to me, it's, it's the same show. The DNA still is still there and you don't like by the third or fourth episode, you don't really miss that she's gone you don't notice
0: i'm not sure i could believe i still that think she
2: deserves some kind of awards <laughs> recognition obviously no, bill macy does great work on that show but emmy, should had have, always emmy rossum
0: play. should have been nominated for three or four emmys for for that show and not just because of the name overlap um yeah it's it remains a good show and maybe i will tune back in and then go back over the three seasons i missed it's not that i ever started disliking shameless it's just that as you may have heard
2: it's a lot of tv
0: too much tv
2: Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thanks for always listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood reporters TV podcast. Be sure to check out Hollywood Remixed, the newest podcast from the Hollywood reporters, Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sun, in which each episode explores a type of story or character that has traditionally been underrepresented or misrepresented in Hollywood. The first episode is live now and features an interview with last Christmas star, Henry Golding.
0: You can subscribe to Hollywood Remixed, but also to TV's top five on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a review. It helps spread word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you, whether you love us or hate us. And if you have questions for future podcasts, and we are moving in the direction of, say, November and December doldrums, so we may be looking at a new mailbag segment. Oh, you know, anytime you have good questions for us, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5 the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie.
2: Until next week, Dan. And congratulations on all of your L.A. Press Club nominations, too, my friend. Okay, round two. Name
0: something that's not boring.
2: A laundry? Ooh, a book club!
1: Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.